Operation Yellowhammer, there was a leak. Now we've got the report released by the government. Bit of it's redacted, but we've got most of it. Professor Catherine Barnard, Professor of EU Law at the University of Cambridge, Senior Fellow at the UK, at the UK in a Changing Europe. <sighs> Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, how are you? It's been a frantic morning, I'll tell you. Simon and Tradiga is their pharmacist. Hi, Simon. Hello, good morning. Hi, and Rob Holliman is with us too, Director of Young's Transport, based in Essex and Southampton. Let's go with you, Rob. Um, What are your concerns here? And have you been enlightened any by reading the report? Um, I think the short answer to that is not really. Um, Our concerns are making sure that we're complying with whatever legal uh, requirements come into force post-Brexit. And the biggest problem we face is contradictory advice, if that's the right word, coming from government bodies, government officials and and even trade bodies. So uh, none of whom seem to have the same uh, interpretation of how things are going to move forward. One of the things, I'll come back in a second, uh, Catherine Barnard, one of the things in this report is that there's extreme concern that many businesses are not adequately prepared for this, Catherine? Yeah, I I think that's right. And I think there is an issue. I think larger businesses have put a lot of resource into preparing for this. Smaller businesses, not all of them have because they don't have the resource. And also they saw that um, a lot of them put a lot of resource into preparing for the 29th of March. And then there was an extension granted. And so the fear is that they put a, a lot of resource into preparing for the 31st of October and an extension gets granted again. And so they are worried about the amount of costs involved. And for those who put the resource in last time and then they discovered they didn't need it, they feel that they've suffered a competitive disadvantage. Let me take you in here, Simon, Tradiger, pharmacist. I'm looking here that it says, if unmitigated, and that's a key, we'll get into this. This is the worst case scenario. If unmitigated, there will be an impact on the supply of medicines and medicine supplies. Medicines are vulnerable to delay because they rely heavily on the short crossings and uh, good distribution practices will have to be met. That's going to be difficult. Temperature control, transit times, some have a short shelf life, particularly vulnerable if there are delays. You know all this stuff. How worried are you? Um, Well, we've all pharmacists are concerned that they're not going to be able to supply the medicines that are required to their patients. Um, The supply chain side of pharmacy already is under great stress. Um, We've had shortages uh, within the UK pharmaceuticals market for the last 18 months or so. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we're afraid of is that um, Brexit is only going to exacerbate this and and make it worse for our patients. Worst case scenario, for those people listening now who need medication for themselves, for a loved one, and are extremely worried, panicking even, that uh, they will not be able to get hold of the pills that they need, what would you say to them? Well, I'd say, first of all, don't panic. Communicate with your um, pharmacist and communicate with your GP um, what the pharmacist will do. Um, whenever there's a shortage, is is uh, tell the patient what's going on, first of all, um, and talk to the GP to see what the alternatives are if a medicine is unavailable. So there's already legislation being passed so that pharmacists can substitute medicines in certain circumstances. 
So, for example, if you we couldn't get the, a particular strength of a medication um, that you required, we could substitute that with a different strength uh, to make it up to the overall dose that you'd want or even substitute a similar drug. All right. It's good to get the advice, but also, Catherine Barnard, it's good to put this into some perspective. We've had a lot of people this morning getting in touch saying, oh, come on, this is worst-case scenario. The government have said they are scaling up preparations for a no-deal Brexit. Uh, it's a it's kind of it's a key thing, this. The, the government argue in their whole strategy of getting a deal, prepare for the worst, and that concentrates minds all around Europe on getting that deal and also updated um, report, an updated report is going to be released just to tell us how this had has advanced and how uh, it's all going to be mitigated. So we have to put this into, the, into that context, Catherine, do we not? Absolutely. And what we know is that uh, since Boris Johnson's become Prime Minister, the uh, work that's being done to prepare for no deal has been significantly increased. There's about 12,000 civil servants working on it, and um, a lot more money has been released to prepare for no deal. And I do believe that the government has been doing a great deal to try to mitigate some of these um, issues. The problem is with the document, it's only five pages long, the Operation Yellow Hammer document, it's only five pages long, and it just lists the problems. It doesn't list what's being done to mitigate those problems. And that's why some people on the Remain side say that's why Parliament ought to be sitting to be asking uh, asking the government what are they going to do to mitigate some of these risks. But it is happening. Um, the problem facing the UK is that while we can mitigate a lot of risks on the UK side, what we can't do is mitigate risks on the EU side, because by definition, the remit of the government doesn't extend that far. That said, the European Commission has also been doing a lot of work on the EU side, putting out various notices to in preparation. And what they have also done is made a number of temporary concessions um, for the UK over, for example, flights, so that uh, UK planes can carry on taking off and landing. Mini and deals, UK yeah. Pilots. Yeah, well, they're not really many deals, because deals requires two, both two sides. It's what the EU has done unilaterally. The problem is because it's unilateral, they can withdraw them at any stage, and they only, they're strictly time-limited at the moment. So, if we do leave with no deal, um, how long might it be before everything plateaus and gets normal again? Well, that is the million-dollar question. I think what's really striking is that the emphasis at the moment is very much on what will happen on day one to perhaps day five. The report, the Yellowhammer report, thinks that things might start getting better within three to six months um, as uh, British um, companies adapt to the changing environment. The problem is what we don't know is what's going to happen, not necessarily on day one or day five, but day 30 or day 60. The risk is that there is a, a slow process of attrition before things get better. And of course, there'll be quite a lot of acrimony on both sides of the channel. The U- UK angry at um, EU not perhaps getting a deal, giving them a deal, and the EU angry with the UK it will make it all the more difficult to start negotiating a future deal which will mitigate some of these consequences. Just an observation, it might be if things do get bad, if we do leave with no deal, if some of these predictions and prognostications do, uh, albeit in a lesser form, um, come to fruition and it shows that there are these problems, it'd be a difficult time to hold an election, wouldn't it? 
wouldn't be a good time, which is why, of course, the pressure would be on to hold it sooner rather than later. And there is also a very practical point. The later it's held, um, the closer you get to Christmas, but also the darker the evenings. And so um, it's not so appealing to be out canvassing and it's not so appealing for voters necessarily to come out late at night. Mm. Charlotte's in Lincoln. Hello. Good morning, Charlotte. We've got Simon in uh, Tredega, who is a pharmacist, who has expressed his concerns, and I think you have some concerns which you can possibly put to him. On you go, Charlotte. Uh, my son, uh, Harry, is severely autistic. He relies on medication for, um, to control his anxiety so that he can function on a day-to-day basis. Um, and he also relies on medication for his levels of nutrition because he has an extremely restricted diet, which is another thing I'm concerned about, whether he'll be able to access his food. But, um, but he relies on both of these things to cope on a day-to-day basis and I, we genuinely have no idea what will happen um, if a no-deal Brexit comes to pass, how, how he's going to cope, how we're going to cope as a family. And it's a really grave concern of ours. Simon, what oh. would you say? Uh, hi, Charlotte. Uh, ha- how old is your little one? Oh, he's not little. He's 14 and a half. Ah, OK. <laughs> not so little. Not so, not so no, little, not then. So little. <laughs> I'm guessing that some of the medication that he's on will be actually manufactured in the UK. Um, So as long as there are supplies of the raw ingredients, I don't think that that will be um, uh, too much of a problem. Um, I'm not so sure where the uh, food supplements are manufactured. Um, But um, both UK government and Welsh government have got... um, contingency plans in place for the the shipping of medicines into the UK um, uh, uh, and they've taken on board um, contracts with uh, um, with cargo planes and stuff like that to to make sure that the medicines reach the UK so I'm quite sure that if you speak to your local pharmacist and to your GP um, that that you can sit down and discuss it with them and and work out what the what the plan would be if there was a a shortage um, on a on a on a short time basis. Right, because I have to say we have, as a family, been stockpiling um, very gradually, and I don't like to jump on the bandwagon and and you know take part in the scaremongering. But I I I am concerned. And he relies on a very specific brand of the medications that he has because of the taste of it, because of his sensory issues. Um, yeah. So um, it's not something that anybody else has been willing to address with us. It's just it's because obviously nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, and that's the answer we've been getting so far. Is that nobody has the answers, so they can't give us the answer. N- uh, no, and to an extent, I think that's right. No, Nobody at the moment really really knows what what what's going to happen we're we're all making plans for what for what might happen um but i think if you uh, it, it might be wise in in your circumstance to have a word with your gp to see if you can um get a prescription slightly earlier than usual so that you've got enough to carry you through the first uh, few weeks of of any breakfast to be fair um, if there are already shortages of medicines can you blame brexit for it brexit not responsible for foreign manufacturers being unreliable no um 
there are already shortages that, that are, mm. are absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. And some of these are due to, I'm sure, manipulation of the of the UK drugs market by um, by some of the players in the market. That's a story um, in itself, isn't it? But yeah, carry on. Absolutely. Um, and, um, well, recently you've seen big fines for some companies um, and investigations launched into shortages of certain medications that have been caused by, by companies um, for profit. Um, you, there, I'm sure that there are uh, some people that are stockpiling already. Um, so, so and, and the UK government wish to shut... 3,000 pharmacies in England. Um, so this has already put the supply chain under a lot of stress. Away from that issue, which we have discussed before and no doubt we'll address again, there's one yeah. here just very quickly. Four, um, four million people in the UK are on antidepressants. Sudden stops in medication, a huge danger. That's a text there. That's some, something else, I guess, to be taken into consideration here. I will come back to you. Let's go to Peter in Kent. Hi, Peter. Good morning. Um, Catherine Bernard, one more time. Perhaps not even one more time. Maybe there'll be a few more if you can stay, Catherine. But there, there are so many I, I questions. Good, good. Pressure's on me now. The question is that, <laughs> that if, if it's signed off, the rebel uh, legislation, there will be no, no deal. And indeed, there may be a deal imminently from Boris Johnson. Angela Merkel said, you know, that possibility is increasing daily. So this might all be straw in the wind. I think that's right. I think um, there is now pressure on Boris Johnson to try and negotiate a deal of some sort because um, he has committed to leaving on the 31st of October and the Hillary Benn Act, as it is now, um, says you can't leave without a deal. Um, and so the pressure will be on him to negotiate a deal. <laughs> but what I would say is that there are going to be problems getting that deal through Parliament. Uh, well, yes, that's a point. But th there will be also many MPs will feel a moral imperative not to block another deal. That's true. Um, but um, the numbers are uncertain. And there is a further issue that um, it's not only got to go through the UK Parliament, it's also go, got to go through the um, Parliament in Strasbourg. Um, and all of that will take some time. And it may not be done by the 31st of October. But if it is done, and therefore there might need to be a short extension quest. Do you think that will be agreed to? I think it's, in, it, it's likely if it's to get the deal through. Yeah. Will, it, will they concede... Accede to a request if it's for a general election. I think so too. Will they accede to a request if it <laughs> if it's for another referendum? Yep, these are all democratic moments right. as the um, as the EU would describe them, and I think there's a good chance that there would be an extension for that purpose. Will there be any circumstances whereby they would not accede to a request? Well, the French are still making noises um, to say no. Um, they won't give us an extension, particularly if it's for a period of, of, of uncertainty. But I think there will be an election shortly, and I think that would be the justification for granting an extension. One more. A few texts are saying this. Why can't we just copy and paste what we've already got until we get something else? 
uh, the, what the existing treaty or the, well, the rules, all the, these the, rules and regulations on you know on Northern Ireland, which affecting Northern Ireland on fuel, on data, on drugs and disease, on border checks, on channel ports, on food and water and security and fishing and all that. Well, at one level, we have done that. That's what the EU Withdrawal Act did, and the EU Withdrawal Act is essentially cut and paste. But the trouble is, a lot of these things require the other side, the EU, to cooperate. Um, for example, data, and that's what the withdrawal agreement was doing to essentially provide a transition period where everything stays the same while we negotiate what the future relationship will look like. Well, data is interesting. Disruption to personal data flow due to no decision from the EU on a new system will Yeah, ha- that's a problem. Well, that's because there won't be an adequacy decision in place by the time we leave if we left with no deal, and that will cause considerable disruption. And the German data protection officer um, said recently they will take a very dim view of any breaches of the um, EU uh, GDPR um, because of no, in, the, in the absence of uh, no adequacy decision. What does a dim view mean? That's like something, well, that's something te- a geography teacher used to say to me. I take a, <laughs> I take a very dim view of that behaviour. What does it actually mean well, practically? It, it, well, they will enforce um, the, the EU G, um, data protection regime seriously, but quite how whether they will do that on day one or day five or day 30 remains to be seen. Sorry to keep you. Thanks, you were brilliant Lovely as ever. Lovely talking to you. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Catherine Barnard.